0: Hey, it's Tia Carrere, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys.
1: Walter Brownsock lived in the town of Brinscombe, in that fabled triangulation between Northwick Compton Bishop and Cocklake. Every Sunday the town would host an exotic market, so exotic that whenever any of the townsfolk referred to it, they actually did air quotes around the word. So, Walter was busily scouring the foreign muck when he was beckoned by a Turkish trader by the name of Hachach Falafel. His hair was long and lank, his limbs spidery and crooked, his eyes as red as digitised blood from an Expendables movie. And if his face were any craggier, one might see Craig Fairbrass lodged in a crease. Ah, salam, he said, like the cartoon market trader that started Disney's Aladdin. They indulged in some back and forth. And after they put down the rope and stopped playing tug-of-war, they bartered. The store was an absolute bombsighted tat. And the fact that every item was marked Made in China made Walter doubt the trader's ethnic credentials. But then he saw a mysterious item shrouded in brown paper. Falafel grinned and raised an eyebrow. "'Ah, a gentleman of good taste,' to which Walter replied, "'and a gentleman of shallow wallet. "'Nothing at Brinscombe Exotic Market is worth a £1,000.' "'But, sir,' Falafel said, his spindly fingers caressing the air between them, "'this is a magic mirror.' Walter thought for a moment. He did need a mirror. He hadn't actually seen himself since 1998, just after he'd finished watching Spoiler with Gary Daniels, and he'd glimpsed himself in the window, frowning at the lack of narrative coherence he had just witnessed. "'Can I see it?' he asked. "'The mirror will show you all of your secrets,' Falafel replied mysteriously. "'Yes, but can I see it now?' Walter clarified, "'before I spend a grand on a pane of reflective glass.' "'You will see all that is hidden,' Falafel said, and he covered his eyes. "'This was for Walter Brownsock's moment.' With the trader temporarily blinded by his own dramatic flourish, Walter grabbed the mirror and ran all the way home to number thirty three Glen Close, with a mirror under his arm. He placed the stolen mirror in the main bedroom, the bedroom where his mother had once died after choking on a bag of pork scratchings. If only she thought to open the bag first. Walter unveiled the so called magic mirror, and it was indeed a mirror and not even a free copy of Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror on remastered Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. But then he saw a figure in the mirror, sitting on the bed behind him. He gasped. It was Hachach Falafel himself! Walter turned his head. Falafel wasn't there. But when he looked back at the mirror, there he was, shrouded in his robes, still grinning with teeth that looked like a Colgate commercial featuring the mouth of Sauron. At this point, Walter started to sweat like Oliver Reed and Morrison's are about to close the wine shutters. Dishonesty brought you here, Falafel uttered darkly. I knew you wouldn't pay for the mirror. It's true, I didn't have the cash, Walter conceded. The last time I carried physical money, it was a single pound coin. And with it, I bought 10 double-sided multi-DVDs from the British Heart Foundation, most of them starring ex-wrestlers, 30 films in total if we loosen the definition of what constitutes cinema. Silence! Falafel bellowed. I look at you looking at me and I look back at you. I can see that, said Walter. But you cannot see yourself, Falafel countered. You cannot see you looking at me looking at you who cannot see her. Walter rubbed his eyes as if to force some absent logic into his brain. When he opened his eyes and saw the mirror again, the figure on the bed was suddenly his mother, his late mother, still bloated and dead and red-eyed and tongue lolled just as he'd found her, just before he'd fished the packet of pork scratchings from her throat. She spoke to Walter with the otherworldly voice of one speaking into a child's novelty microphone. "'You killed me. You know you did. Tish and pish, mother.' You drank twelve pints of Samuel Smith's nut-brown ale and said you were hungrier than John Candy during Ramadan. To which his mother said, You speak that which the truth regards as its opposing force. Oh, you mean I'm lying? Yes, she said. That night, she went on, in the Brinscombe Conservative Club, where a talented local vocalist sang the greatest hits of Gene Pitney, I Wanted scampion and Chips. It was £6.75, but you would only lend me a fiver, so all I could afford was a pint, some dry-roasted peanuts, and pork scratchings. Actually, mother, Walter said, exasperated, you said to me, I think I've already got a fiver in my purse. So the fiver I lent you was in addition to the money I assumed you already had. Silence! His spectral mum suddenly shrieked. Ghostly, ectoplasmic tendrils crawling from her now glowing eyes i will curse you she promised not unsinisterly i put it to you walter said firmly that you took my money and put it straight into the who wants to be a millionaire gambler which meant that you were a fiver down by the time you got to the bar though the room was silent in the mirror the phantom had now risen in rage from the bed becoming a twisted mass of light swirling around the room and the maddened entity cried You will pay more than a fiver for your crimes. And with that, she lunged towards Walter, bursting out of the magic mirror and blinding him in a flash of light. When Walter came to, he found himself on the floor of the bedroom with a headache worse than Michael Ironside at the end of David Cronenberg's scanners. He rose. looked around. Everything was the same, yet different. Everything in the room was reversed. The bed was against the other wall. The writing on the Short Circuit 2 poster was backwards. He looked at the mirror. The bed and the poster and the whole room was suddenly correct. So, this was his curse. To spend the rest of his life looking through mirrored eyes. A life where every stop sign says POTS. Where he gets laughed at for forgetting his left and right. Where Mario runs away from the stupid princess. Where he endlessly puts recycling in the black bin where he's bumping into walls where once there was a door, where written Arabic suddenly becomes naturally to him, and where he'd have to carry a makeup mirror just to read a takeaway menu. Walter Brownsock muttered to himself, fuck's sake.
0: Hello, one hello all. Um, thank you for listening. This is Kino Kingdom, and this is episode 80. Um, and we have to begin this Halloween episode, Rupert, with a correction, actually. Um what, one of our one of our listeners has has contacted us and and basically tutted. Um this is from Max, uh who says, a correction you. you mentioned Chad McQueen without mentioning that he is most famous for being a gang member in Karate Kid, as well as being Steve McQueen's that one son. And also <laughs> having a son called Steve McQueen, not that one, as well. <laughs> so I'm assuming that was when we talked about firepower. Um with Gary Daniels, with the the mismatch names, so much mismatching in that yeah. film. Uh, so I, if,
1: I love the way you put like, oh, one of the guys in Karate Kid first before being Stephen Queen's son, as if an order of like interest. <laughs> it's. I remember, is it, was it wasn't Hunter S. Thompson. It
0: was uh, William S. Burroughs he used like a mm. cut and paste technique with his books. I think he did it with um, Naked Lunch where he would cut up paragraphs and like reassemble them. So it's sort of all told out of order. Um, mm-hmm. And it's almost like that's what the casting director did with this. It's, they, they lined up like the actor. Okay, so obviously Gary Daniels can be this one and Altamoro can be this one. And then they just hacked it all up and like pushed them all yeah. together. And they said, there we go. Yeah. Oh, we're, cast, we're casting Chad McQueen and asking him to do a Michael Madsen impression.
1: And the lithe and flexible Gary Daniels will be called the hammer and the bulky muscular uh, wrestler is going to be called the swordsman, naturally, naturally. So,
0: so, so thank you, Max, for that. How, how, how dare we? How, start <laughs> the rest. how dare agree. we not mention that? Um, <clears> There's <throat> another thing I wanted to mention. We um, both offline have discussed, we both own um, the book of the game of the film. Yes. Which is something, which I think we will, because it does tie into to movies, we will review it when we've both read it. Yes. Have, have you got it to hand? Um,
1: I have it across the room.
0: Oh, no, it's, it's, it's fine. Basically, right. I was, the book of the game of the film, so it, it breaks down... Um, it's sort of three paragraphs on each each entry and mm. for instance on page 11 I'm just choosing one randomly it's Porky's right I didn't even know there was a Porky's video game on the 2600 or whatever and it's you know a little bit of history about the film talk about the game and then you know how it was received and he starts off the paragraph about the film and I've seen the first two Porky's films right? and even as a teenager they were just, they just shit <laughs> they were just <laughs> yeah. shit never um, funny Never funny, and just like really, even as a kid, it just like uncomfortably sleazy, and like, and it's like, well, I'd rather just watch porn like, <laughs> uh, as opposed to like awkward teenagers embarrassing themselves unfunnily. And it just mentioned, I just had to say this because halfway down that paragraph, it's page eleven, if you want to get to it another time, mm. it just says, oh, it's been the sort of subject of a recent cinematic reevaluation, and I thought, not not in this, I said, not
1: I mean, there are a lot of like '80s comedies are re- being reevaluated, but usually from the perspective of, oh, actually, they're a bit creepy now. You know, I look like at you big, big. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely big, yes. But you know, sixteen candles, this sort of thing, and and um, even stuff like Ghostbusters. Like when you look at like Bill Murray's behavior in that, and, and you know, so I th- I fear that I. I It's unlikely you're going to look at Porkies and think, (laughs) and think, oh, actually, it was amazingly like progressive for the time. I suspect you'll find it amazingly regressive, surprisingly unpleasant, and tasteless.
0: It's was there one called Lemon Popsicle as well? I don't know. What? I don't know. I was more into ski school mate that was just one was just like really buxom women um, like yeah. the most ni- 90s women in the world just finding excuses to take their tops off and nerdy guys look at each other going whoa, 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 whoa. 90 uh, minutes
1: simpler time.
0: <laughs> 90 minutes of that
1: um, I was too busy watching Ski Sunday <laughs> <laughs> i was too busy eating a ski yogurt to, to do so busy eating that
0: yogurt so delicately i had no time to do anything else in the 90s oh Britt, are you coming out to listen to nirvana no no i'm just just gonna finish off this yogurt actually yeah. um but you're gonna come and listen to a lot of new metal no no almost halfway through the ski yogurt at the moment so just, it's tasting a bit funny now to be honest because it's march um uh, the other thing is um you know, with the freebie channels, Rupert. Yes, I do. And yeah. well, we've had um, uh, a little tip for our listeners mm. on how how to basically wangle the algorithm. My third album, and this is from uh, our regular Utah. Um, this is should you watch things with? I guess it would work with anything that has ad breaks in it. Mm. Um, this is. Let me just quickly find it. I wish I planned these better, to be honest. I'm such a, I'm such a damn fool.
1: Uh, yeah, but that's what gives this podcast its raw quality, isn't it? Raw or <laughs> oh, <laughs> <I'm cool? prepared>. <laughs> <laughs> So this is Utah's
0: tip. Just do to start watching The Princess
2: Bride, because uh, you were talking about it. And I'm watching it in 90pX. Um, <laughs> oh, excuse me. And um, it's just reminded me of a little uh, tip I discovered uh, ages ago. Was it when you're uh, streaming stuff for free, but the uh, you know the caveat is you have adverts that you can't skip because they make you watch them, hence it's free, uh, like on that freev or ITVX. Um, it doesn't happen every time, but every time I've done it, it has happened, it works. If you just fast-forward through the film like if you feel you can see on the bar the time bar where the advert breaks out. there's little dots or lines if you just fast forward as fast as you can <laughs> just skip before you start watching a film past that first line press play you, you, you it makes you watch the adverts and then if you just scroll to the next one press play start the advert watch the adverts do that to all of them and then rewind it back to the beginning and then watch the film and um the, the algorithm or however it works knows you've watched all the adverts and it'll just play the movie without without stopping i just thought it was quite interesting uh, i mean you've got to be you've got to be planning ahead for it i've just done it with the prince <laughs> it took about five minutes because it was fast forwarding really slowly but um <laughs> yeah if you want to watch a film uninterrupted it might be worth it
1: oh, so yeah. So, so. Yeah. <laughs> excellent so you kind of like take you like just spend a bit of time getting the adverts out of the way and then you can watch uninterrupted. I like it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. If, so, yeah, I might on to the next. Because the thing is, usually if you're, you know, the start of a film, you're settling down anyway, you know, pouring a drink or getting some snacks or whatever. So you just add an extra two minutes yeah. on that time, clown through the adverts in two minutes. And then just because we've talked about this before where I said the adverts are like four seconds long. Like you would start off and say, oh, buy some ki- oh, back to the film. And so, oh, that was br- br- brisk. Um, but then sometimes, you know, it can be like a minute and a half or whatever. So yeah, if you're on freeview, whatever, that's Utah's tip for the day is uh, just just get them Good. all out of the way first of all. And and to be honest, Utah's tip leads us very nicely into Utah's movie rhyming Stephen Lang of the week as well.
2: Back in the Doris Day when I used to work in the WH Maggie Smith's, I was Jim carrying some MMs to the John Candy section when a very attractive gal, Gaddett, stood incredibly Glen close and bent Robert Downey Junior in front of me, myself and Irene. It was very Tom Hardy not to stare at Brad Pitts. I had a quick hollyvalance, then I looked Anne Hathaway, but it was two Bill Gates. She went completely Billy and Zane, grabbed a Matt Mars bar, and some Rutger Hower managed to Bill Pullman me over. All right, said Fred, I'm not used to this sort of Mark Rowlands. As the oven stardust settled, a Roy Chubby Brown Gary old man shouted Sandra, oh let that Michael man go. He was Don Johnsting in Emilio Estefes hat, and he was rather chow young fat. I felt a bit of a Chris Pratt about the whole thing. Um, she gave me a Gregory Peck on the Chevy Chase and Howard Sternly reminded me of proper uh, Patricia R. Etiquette. Her and her guy, Richie, uh, his name was, Christopher walken off leaving me a bit dazed and confused. But I did live Tyler to John C. Riley another Charlie Day.
0: <laughs> it's, it's getting to the point now. It's, it's literally just like... There's not, many, there's not many connecting words.
1: <laughs> oh my one. god! I think my favourite part of that was using Rutger Hauer for the word how. Amazing, absolutely amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I like how the, the, it's it's a condensed story because it's a, effectively about him looking at someone's tits and getting told <laughs> off, but just with so many movie references just stuffed into the bag. Apparently he was doing that in his notebook and work and. Uh, someone came over and asked him like oh what's that and he and he said as i was explaining it i realized how like ridiculous the whole thing sounds like oh my friend my friend does this podcast and i you know and and apparently she was like glazing over like oh right like, okay, whatever. <laughs>
1: yeah like she she realized she's never going to understand what he's actually <laughs> doing no matter how much you like to describe it
0: <laughs> so thank you utah always always a pleasure um and this leads us on because you know if I mean people could be listening to this at any time, but this is actually our Halloween episode for 2023, and I believe Rupert that you and I have both watched pure horror this this time. Only horror. Well, yeah, yes, some of them. And,
1: not quite sure it really qualifies, but yeah.
0: Well, to be honest, the, the one or two I've watched that don't qualify were, were so horrifically bad that they are <laughs> terrifying, um, and I just wanted to say that there's a very real danger of this being a two-parter uh, because i know that we've we, we tend to go bonkers around halloween and watch a lot of horror films and really really dive into them so um <coughs> but before we go into the actual movie reviews i posted on our twitter channel um i think oh god i forgot what it was. it's at kino kingdom uh, on on twitter uh and you can email us at the men who talk at com. And this is we asked our listeners the things that really got under their skin when it comes to horror films. So not like just someone like being eaten, just something specific to you that you think, all oh, right, here we go. This is lovely, isn't it? And we had some really interesting ones. So do you want to do mine and yours first before we move on to the listeners? Would it make sense to do it that way?
1: I think we should have the listeners first. I think they should. Okay. They should we should hear the voice of the people. Oh, fair enough, then.
0: Um, we'll talk about this afterwards, because uh, I dislike it when you disagree with anything I do or say. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, Transval, <clears throat> Transval said, elongated smiles, animated violence, and this was really interesting. Ironic comeuppance kind of goes through him a bit. So stuff like in Wishmaster, or Leprechaun, and he said here, like you I, I, he have to explain this to me, Game of Thrones melted crown. You probably understand that reference more than I do.
1: Um, I think is that so where someone some like the molten metal is poured on someone's head. Yeah, like he wants the
0: crown and he gets it, but in like an ironic way that obviously I assume if it doesn't kill him, he at least has two <laughs> Refend plus afterwards. Um, but yeah, the the leprechaun, the the example I had is you know where uh, Warwick Davis is talking to someone and the guy's like I want money and he's like oh so I'm dealing with a greedy man. He's like oh yeah I'm so greedy give me everything give me a pot of gold and he puts it inside him if you remember yeah and yes. it like grows inside him and it bursts so that kind of ironic come up really makes him feel uh uh uncomfortable and animated violence even in cartoons with stuff like happy tree friends or apparently even like um cartoon violence and things like american dad with his blood just makes him feel really queasy for some reason there's probably some sort of childhood trauma that i couldn't be bothered getting into. <laughs> there, but, yeah to be honest. And, and i'm with him on the elongated smiles there's um A really good short horror called I think it's just called like Smiling Man. And it's just a bloke smiling and running down the street, but quite frankly, that's all I needed to see. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Um, Transvaals. Lee has said Rupert and Britt, regarding the latest KK and things in horror films that are rank. I despise mirror jump scares. Yes
1: and the needle thing.
0: The needle thing I'm still disturbed by the bit in the fly two where the needle snaps off in his arm and blood Ooh. shoots out of it, it. Is the fly too with Eric Stoltz. It is, yeah. God, I feel like nice. I saw that a very long time ago. It's not terrible, but it's not great either. Well, the, uh, the, mirror, the mirror jump scares, the sort of despising of the mirror jump scares is interesting mm-hmm. because I'm assuming that's when, I mean, it happens in every film, I think even in every romantic comedy where someone looks at a mirror and then they shut yes. it and then, yeah. Uh, I, I've got to the point where it's such a sort of... St- is it a set trope, I guess?
1: Yeah, the, the, uh, yes. The, it, it, it becomes almost muted because it's so tropey. Yeah.
0: I, I think, that, oh, I was going to say that I find it, when that happens, when that sort of shot comes in and they go to the medicine cabinet, I actually enjoy thinking, oh, is there or isn't there? And I kind of don't care okay. either way, but I, I, I almost enjoy it because it's, it's, it's such, it's in so many films that it's, I find it oddly comforting, if you know what I mean. So yeah. I, I that really doesn't bother me, but the, the yeah, needles so it's I remember like this
1: warm blanket same. for you, yeah, yeah. which would abject fear for our listener. Lovely, what a lovely cozy hug. Lovely
0: emotional. <laughs> for me, it's quite often I like open and open and shut my medicine cabinet, just saying yes, yes, yes. Um, but every now and again, having a cardboard out of Rutger Hauer popping up behind me at random intervals. So oh, I'm scared, or no, I'm not. Um, with the needle thing. I remember watching The Exorcist for the first time when I was quite young, and the two bits that I remember terrifying me the most were the uh, the flash, the kind of subliminal image of the demon during like the flashing sequence.
1: Yes,
0: yeah. That I didn't like that at all. And also, nope. the again, when they used to do X-rays by injecting you with something, and they take the needle out, or they they inject something, and as they take it out to put the other needle in, there's like a really thin. Like, of blood <laughs> and I remember thinking oh and it just made me feel sick and I didn't realise I had a problem with it until then same as um, in Pulp Fiction when the, when the blood mixes with the drugs and it sort of clouds up before it gets injected back in it's like oh that's not clean that's not good for you that's <laughs> not going to be nice so yeah I um I struggle with that as well Lee um, uh, Max says as for actual rankness most of the body horror in The Fly particularly the nails coming off Ooh, yeah. Uh, some, some of these I don't know about, so you'll have to indulge me. The torture in audition, and then he's put in brackets. Piano wire. That doesn't okay. sound good. The meat no, hooks in Texas Chainsaw good. Massacre. That don't know that. Or oh, the sound Which, the girl makes in Juon. The sound the girl makes is like a crackling, like a. Isn't it? Yeah. Is that, yeah. What was
1: the Texas Chainsaw Massacre one? Uh, meat hooks. Oh right, yeah, meat hooks, yeah.
0: Oh, is that so? Is that just like plonking people on meat hooks and
1: like, oh, yeah, you'll be
0: back, sure. I'll be back later and you'll be a my sandwich. Yeah,
1: it's really well done in um, it's really well done in in the original text, *Chains of Because there's a part where she, he just kind of like idly lifts this girl up and just puts her on this meat hook, and it's really cleverly done. I don't, they must have had like some sort of brace or something on her back, but it, it looks he just in a single shot, he just lifts her up and just puts her on the meter, And she just hangs there. And it's just really well done for the time. And I just thought, yeah, that's disgusting. Is, is she dead when he hangs her up? She's having a rough time. No, she's not dead. That's the, is, that's what's really horrible.
0: About it. Is that the scene? Is that the scene then? I got a feeling I must have watched this a very long time ago where, cause I remember seeing one such thing like this, where someone gets put up on a meter and they're kind of coming round and they're like, Whoa, what's happening? And then they get plonked on it. And it's like, it's not even yeah. pain. It's like beyond pain. It's pure sh- like shock. Uh, like whoa! I didn't expect that. And then they scream, obviously. But yeah, that was the bit that got me. Was like the the, the sort of shock. Imagine coming round and being plonked on a meat back first. I know. You You'd think yeah. Oh. Yeah. You you text is it because in the next scene, does not it? You see her reach for her phone and she types a message to her boss saying, "I'm going to be late <coughs> for work."
1: Um, going back to the mirror thing, I just it just I just remembered. One of my favourite mirror scares and it was an unusual one was in um the Stephen King adaptation uh Dolores Claiborne. Yeah. Which wasn't a particularly great film, but there's one really cool the Stephen scene. King
0: adaptation's really
1: hard. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Mid nineties Stephen King adaptation, not that good. Weird. But um Um yeah, there's a scene in that where someone looks in a mirror and they are looking at themselves from behind so it's really odd it's really disorientating i remember thinking oh that's strange so they kind of like like stand in front of the mirror and they're looking at the back of themselves it's sort of like i think the reason why it freaked me out was because it's like completely not what a mirror is meant to do it's like um i don't know it had a really cool sense of the uncanny about it so that was that was cool does
0: that scene then continue? And she's looking in the mirror. she's the back of her head? And then the man in the mirror shop comes over and says, oh, that one's broken. So don't worry. I, I keep on I mean, to take it off the wall, but uh, I keep forgetting. <laughs> and then it's like the horror is completely reduced. It's like, oh, okay, it's just a broken man. And then he just bends it and that's it. Um, uh, what else have we got here? So yeah, this I just blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, so the torture and audition piano wire. Because the bit in audition I certainly didn't like is where someone comes out of a bag and he drinks a load of sick. That
1: made me think, oh,
0: oh yeah. I don't think I have my soup for lunch actually. So, what? Um, just swore
1: off someone's foot with a, with piano wire. I mean, I forgetting would... the details exactly, but
0: <laughs> that would forget that would take a while. That would.
1: I remember someone saying "kitty kitty
0: kitty" a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the mm. thing. I remember that something yeah. that actually made me feel queasy, so I had to stop watching that. Um, and yeah, and Chrissy Derbyshire on Twitter said. When Brundle's neck finger uh, Martin Brundle from the flight when Martin Brundle's fingernails start coming off. Martin uh, Brundle any- <laughs> Oh, is it why did they say Martin Brundle then? It's near Bru- isn't, isn't like, like a Formula, Formula One driver. <laughs> you know me on my Formula One. Yeah, um, it's not probably his dad. Um, any cha- any instance of Achilles tendons being severed? Oh, that happens in Pet Cemetery, doesn't it? To uh, Fred Gwynn, I think mm, he, does, he doesn't like that at all. Yeah, he's <laughs> like
1: ouchie. That Cause, oh, really smarted. Cause,
0: yeah, because the child hacks his Achilles and he screams and falls to the floor, and then he reaches up, and then the little boy comes around and says, "I assume you are trying to get to these," and he's holding up a packet of anadin extra. <laughs> <laughs> And this one again, you'll have to enlighten me. The midsummer cliff scene.
1: Oh yeah, that was that was harsh. Yes, so that, it, it's part of the sacrifice because they get, they get sacrificed once they hit a certain age. Well, they start singing Elton John song. Wow, and uh, they just and they just take them to the top of this cliff and just push them <laughs> off, <laughs> like and they just smash on a rock below. But it's all done just completely in frame, and they just. Falls off is, you know, embracing his death uh, and just just his head just smashes on the bottom. It's that's an unpleasant film.
0: Is is it like um, when, they, when they, it's obviously like a ritualistic sort of murder, so, yeah. but when they push them off, is it like a gentle push and they put their arms up, like embracing it, or does it just shove them
1: and their head kind of pops back and you sort of go, <laughs> <laughs> I honestly can't remember, but I, I know what you mean. Like that thing where you shove someone in the back, yeah, yeah they, like their head stays in the same place with yeah. the rest um, of their body. Goes yeah, <laughs> and then they lose their footing and go, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we well, he did it. get up afterwards and say, so Oh, he really. Oh, a bit of whiplash there, Jesus.
0: Yeah. He gets up, like falling 70 feet before he stands up, and then from above, he is, Take two of these. And then a pack of anodine extra flutters <laughs> down.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's reaching up, and it's just like the anodine extra is really light in the wind because it's <laughs> he's missing. So it's just like, Oh, out. He's like trying yeah. to catch it, but it's just fluttering away
0: careful there's only the two left <laughs> that's, that's why they've got the no they've got no heft yeah. and It's quite a probably takes the sting out of that scene really all that nonsense dialogue um yeah so i mean f- for me then that they were the um the entrance from from the listeners for me because i've got eczema and it's nowhere near as bad now as it was as when i was a kid i really dislike skin burns and skin diseases and anything of that nature that makes me feel really
1: uncomfortable mm-hmm. um but w- what are yours um a few of my slightly uh more idiosyncratic ones would be uh, i i i get disturbed by silent cuts in horror films and i think part of this is because there are so few silent cuts in horror films because usually it'll be a crash cut of some description or there'll be some you know Some music will come in or something, and this is something that The Shining did better than anyone. Like when Danny would would have one of his visions. Fucking Kubrick, every episode. Um, But like when Danny's having his visions and stuff, it doesn't. It's like the music's brooding, but it doesn't like have a sudden shriek or whatever when it cuts. It will just, it will just flick to an image. It's kind of like what you're saying about the in The Exorcist and that when you just get an image up on the screen, it's like. There's no kind of like ceremony to it. It just it, it just comes along. It's like I think that works really well. Um, I get I get freaked out by um, and I suppose this is kind of related to the mirror thing, but like uh, the use of empty frames in films. I think this is just an appreciation of good horror films. To be honest, this is just, just a, a, a just an excuse to talk about good horror directors because John Carpenter's amazing at this and he does it so well particularly in Halloween the original Halloween and it's where he'll he'll position the character in the frame in such a way that he'll leave space behind them or leave some like mysterious space around them as if something should occupy that space and he does it constantly in Halloween and he does it really well and that's why it's better than other films of that period um so that's cool and that creeps me out and uh, something really specific that freaks me out every time is people turning around now when i that's what i wrote in my notes not just just anyone hate, turning around lives back <laughs> <laughs> but it's when this and in, in it and because it's quite tropy. it's like but not that tropy. um it still creeps me out. So like an an example would be at the start of the Tommy knockers, right? There's nothing particularly good or scary about the Tommy knockers in general, but the very first scene involves, has someone like you see it from their perspective, walking through the woods and there's a woman like sitting on the Mm -hmm. ground facing away and it's going Mm -hmm. towards her and you know, she's going to turn around there's going to be something buzzing there. So you're just kind of like waiting. Yes, Yes, yes. And then she turns around and there's something horrible about her face. And, that's still even though that's really tropey uh i just think i like the way that it's like okay it's not like a jump scare but it has that it's kind of like that dreadful feeling that you're gonna get freaked out by something and there's nothing you can kind of do about it you're just kind of like relentlessly going towards this inevitable uh scare so
0: it it, it reminds me of um a similar sort of thing to that is in uh is in Cre- Creep Show. I think it's the first creep show where I don't remember that prostitute turns up to like a, a house and then the there's a guy there who's sort of she's going to supposedly have sex with and then she gets mm-hmm. on top of him and smothers him with a pillow. And then she's sort of just ransacking the house after she's killed him and she's just like sort of going through the stuff and she opens the cupboard and the family who actually live in the house are dead. So you know he's a killer as well. And then she sort of turns around and really slowly lifts the pillow off his face and yes. There's a load of teeth and an elongated smile, and he's just staring at it really silently with the yellow eyes. That, even talking about it is giving me goosebumps. I remember watching that and thinking, oh my God, I am not <laughs> going to sleep soundly tonight. Um, the, the whole thing about, like, in the forest, though, the walking towards an inevitable, because I think that happens in like, Is it, what's that really gentle? Is it The Others or The Hours with Nicole Kidman? The Others yeah. is
1: a horror film with Nicole Kidman. The Hours. Yeah is not our film.
0: It must be the other thing. It's just yeah, in that, like a child turns around. The thing is with the whole thing, if I was walking through a forest, I was like taking my dog, my dog, Nora Batty for a walk. And then I was like walking through the forest. And I saw like someone like hunched over in a log and they slowly turned around. I said, duh, duh, duh. are you a menger? Are you a menger? <laughs> if you are, you can face that way. while I go over here. Um, Only turn around if you're a burner or at least a mid ranger.
1: Um, one of my favorite turnaround scares is in Cape Fear. Um, I don't know how recently you saw that, but it's the bit where he, uh, where they're kind of like, they're expecting Robert De Niro's character to come to the house and, uh, but they've kind of defended all the doors and stuff like that. So there's no way you can get in. But of course, the way he gets in is by dressing as the female, um, like the female, like Hispanic maid. And you you kind of see her walking around like in the background and it's like completely, completely normal. And you, you have absolutely no idea who it is. And then suddenly she just turns around and it's Robert De Niro and he's got like he's wearing like face paint and stuff. And it's just his face. And it's and then he just instantly murders a guy with piano wire. And it's like that was quite surprising. That was a surprising scare.
0: Going back to your comments as well about with John Carpenter with something in the frame, I think for me, uh, which I think is the title of a Nirvana song as well, the last track of Nevermind, is when in horror films, when it cuts to either what someone can see or to like a still frame and you know there's something in it that's going to move or you're, it's like we, I like it in films where your eyes aren't directed where to look. Yes. You know, where it's like you're thinking, oh, what's going to happen? And then something will move that you didn't notice. And there's a really good one in it's one of the many conjurings or whatever, where there's someone on top of a wardrobe. Oh, yeah. And he backs out of the things and then and then turns around and it's only turns around and they start to move. You see there's someone up there and it's that kind of thing. I like a lot. I find that really creepy. Again, it's like stillness and silence
1: yeah my, it's something about the
0: names of my fists actually
1: <laughs> but it's like i think it's why we often criticize jump scares because jump scares can be good and they can work but there's something which stays with you when it's not a jump scare because it's not startling as such it just kind of like chills you and there's a good one in a bit like the uh wardrobe scene in conjuring there's a good one in i think it's the i can't remember with, which if it's twin peaks the movie or whether it was Firewalk with me anyway one of the movies twin peaks and it was uh where she is remembering walking into laura palmer's room after she's died uh, the the mother is wa- remembers walking to the room where after her daughter's died and it's an empty room obviously an empty bedroom but where, as she's remembering it her her kind of it's a point of view shot and it, and it casts across the bed and then suddenly you see just like crouched behind the bed is Bob, the kind of devil incarnate guy, just crouched behind the bed, staring out between the bars. That was a frightening scene. But again, not a jump scare. It's a, it's something which where your eyes are drawn somewhere within the frame. And it's the quality of the filmmaking and the editing and the direction which is
0: so Triggered it. I think it. I've seen that so that you could. Does it so it pans across and you
1: sort of yeah. there. does it pan back then or is that it? You pans across. I can't remember must... what exactly the shot looks like, but I know that it's like all very gently done. And of course, classic David Lynch style, it's there's no music, I don't think. I think it's just like a kind of low rumbling to make you feel uncomfortable, of course. Yeah.
0: Anyway, rumbling, make you think you need some Imodium. So thank you, everyone who um, who responded. Uh, always much appreciated. Good talking points. And if you've got any more, like I said, this will probably be a two-parter. So um, this will go up and feel free to email us at themenwhotalkwithoutlook.com or follow us uh, on Twitter at Kino Kingdom. And that's K-I-N-O. Well, you know how to spell it. You're looking at it on your bloody phone. Um So, yeah, you dullards. So. Yeah, so yeah, what a bunch of dickheads. Um so let's let's move on to the movie reviews, um, which is the meat and potatoes of the podcast. But never the veg. The veg is everything else. We've talked about the veg. Now it's time to talk about the steak. And this time it's a it's a it's a blue steak with blood hoofing out of it because it's Halloween. Yes. In fact, it's not it's not even cooked, it's just a cow that we're eating ravenously, cannibalistically, yeah. because it's Halloween. Because we're werewolves. <laughs> waiting to turn part one so do, uh, you've probably got how, how many have i got again i'm happy for this to be split over two episodes i've got one two three four five six seven and a tmt so oh, actually nine so yeah what, what how many have you got
1: i've got seven on my list here
0: i don't think gonna get
1: through everything are we but no. you know no okay do you want to do
0: you want to launch us off into the stratosphere my sweet?
1: sure thing I'll start with a, I'll just start with a high. I'll talk about Humanoids of the Deep, Um, AKA Monster, not that one, Uh, which is on freebie at the moment. Watched all the adverts mind. Um, Yeah, so this is a a 1980 monster movie starring Doug McClure. Um, And it's a bit of a grubby little creature feature, I'd say. It's, uh, It's this small coastal town is besieged by these swamp thing like monsters that emerge from the sea and they murder the dudes and rape the women. Um, uh. Yeah. You, yeah. Um, I mean, you get the usual bickering between the local residents. You get, you get the out of town scientists who's there to provide exposition. You get new World teens being picked off while they're feeling each other up. The usual stuff. And as always, Doug McClure Steady and authoritative, and without any discernible charisma, as per usual. Um, there's some decent gore makeup by Rob Bottin, who of course went on to work on The Thing, I believe. Good. Um, and, and I mean, the monsters are—they are very seaweedy, although they—they got these overlong arms which look ridiculous. It goes to show that it doesn't matter how high quality the Makeup effects are if the design is crap um yeah. and there is a certain intensity to the sheer aggressiveness of the monsters because they don't creep around they just come out the see and attack people they don't <laughs> they don't mess around there's no skulking um i i think the sexual element to this film is needlessly lurid um and apparently it was insisted upon by the producer roger corman of course um and it does sometimes feel like the film's tension is built around when the next hot teen is going to get their kit off rather than the anticipation of violence, but on the plus side it's very short it's like eighty minutes tops very fast moving there are loads of attacks, and it's lit well enough and edited well enough that you can see what's going on <clears throat> that's a that's a bonus and the music is um quite, above that's, average. that's quite fundamental really isn't it yeah something,
0: just seeing so something that the... The, the people who made the dark and didn't listen to because i i've I got about three minutes in i thought i cannot hear or see anything i have to turn this off. <laughs> I,
1: I think and i don't think it's really something which in terms in editing terms i don't think it's something that really affects films of this period anyway i don't know i think it was really the 90s when they suddenly started doing like really ridiculous stylized flashy fast cutting to represent stuff happening which meant you couldn't tell what's going on I look at you bats with Lou Donald Phillips um (laughs) which I'll talk about next week um yes Uh, the music yes above average it's an early James Horner score um not as good as his work on Wolfen of course or Aliens but it's pretty good it's got none of the atmosphere or tension or folklore of John Carpenter's the fog. And it doesn't have any of the like sly humor of the early like, Joe Dante stuff, you know, like Piranha or something like that. And in fact, Joe Dante was offered this film and he said no correctly. So I'd say the film it certainly provides what Roger Coleman was looking for, which is boobs and gore. So if you're looking for that, then look no further. But if you're looking for like competent acting or interesting characterization or plot surprises or any originality, then look elsewhere. It, is, incre- it, is,
0: incredibly it is incredibly fortuitous that you just mentioned The Wolfen, because that perfectly ties into the film I'm going to talk about next, because it's mm-hmm. written by the person who wrote The Wolfen. Good. Um, so that's really well. But I just wanted to say, Humanoids of the Deep, it rang a bell, and I was just having a quick Google them. I watched a remake of it starring Robert Carradine. That's and funny. I don't even know if I talked about it on the podcast. It was so bad that I just thought, <laughs> I, I don't even want to think about it anymore, let alone like have to make notes and talk about it. It was just... When yeah, must it it was it, must, it? I'm going to guess it was the 90s. Well, you do. Humanized from the Deep, Robert Carradine. Okay. I'm guessing. It looked. It seemed like a late 90s when I'd say like 99 or something. because It was just a dismal, low-budget film where nothing nothing happens you know they live on a dock and these things come out and kidnap people but it's it's really like soft and there's no there's no edge to it at all it just it was a terrible film 96 oh yeah, i thought it'd be like mid to late 90s that's well yeah little bonus review don't watch that because it was cap. <laughs> um yeah so <clears throat> um yeah so you mentioned um Wolfen there which was the novel that the film with albert finney from 1981 was was based on was written by whitley striber and i watched and i don't know if you've ever seen this i've never heard of it and i i randomly put it on one night when faye was out and my son happened to go to bed bizarrely early so i watched communion with christopher walken have you seen oh, yeah? this no this was a really bizarre film because it the book apparently the people um, Whitley Stryber completely renounced the film because he said it's just, it just not based on any of his writing and it was panned at the time, just completely panned. But it's, I will recommend it because Christopher Walken is it's, it's such a wonderfully bizarre performance. So it's set in the 80s in New York and, oh, actually, just looking at this, Whitley Stryber, so it's, it's the author's name, Christopher Walken, uh, is, lives in Manhattan and they have this holiday home and they get their, um, I think it's like a... He's um, a Rom- the Romanian friend and his young wife, and they get in a in the car and they drive out there. And the first night they're there, um, they basically have an alien experience, like some sort of abduction, and they all see this light, mm-hmm. and and in and, 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 but then Chris Walken kind of gets taken outside by it. And everyone else stays in the, in this cabin and when they come back the next day they all deal with it differently, so this is the first 10 minutes of the film, like the son is like, what happened last night and puts it down to, you know, as kids do kind of dismisses it as a weird dream the mother doesn't remember it, Christopher Walken's really affected by it, the Romanian guy is deeply spiritual and he just demands to just be taken back to the city and we pretty much don't see him for the rest of the film because he just refuses to even acknowledge what happened, and the plot then centres on, Christopher Walken's kind of Descent in, in in not not into madness, and that's the brilliant thing. It's it's going to be quite a hard thing to explain. It. The film itself is just quite sort of boxy, if that makes sense. Like it's mm. it moves from place to place, and he goes to hypnotherapists, and he goes to therapy. But what, what I found really really interesting, and I couldn't l- look away from, is he captures it melodramatically perfectly, um, like a like a man like a, a kind of slightly kooky man anyway. Like when we see him record how he preps his, um, how he like writes is he like films himself and he dresses up as the characters and he's wandering around sort of talking to himself and monologuing <clears throat> and he really like beats him up if he doesn't come up with anything that day. So, yeah, and he's he's got quite a weird sort of temperament. So he's just a bit of a kooky bloke anyway, but he kind of refuses to, like no one in the film ever says the word aliens and it, yeah. and it's just it's just what was amazing is this scene after scene of him tr- trying to come to terms with it because it keeps happening and and and, and explain it to his wife and yeah. without it's like he every time someone says to him so like why are you why are you not sleeping why have you why is this huge personality change what's wrong and like almost it's almost like he's been mm-hmm. raped and and he keeps on saying, well, you know these uh huh, whew, well." uh and and it's like it's brilliant because he, he it's so like he's refusing to believe what's happened to him because he knows how ridiculous it sounds and when he finally blurts like this therapist you're almost like oh my god thank god you've told someone and and then of course and then but then even his therapist is like oh, i'm gonna bring your wife in now and i want you to tell her and he's like okay and then she comes in and sits down next to him in this 80s therapist office and he's like and he's like rolling his sleeves up and he's like right okay and then, um, and then the therapist is like, "Well, tell her about you know the about the rectal probing." And I thought, "What an opening line!" <laughs> like, so immediately, and he's like, oh, "I don't want to do this." And then he gets taken to like a a group of people who have also been abducted, and they they've kind of embraced it, and they feel like they've been visited and chosen and stuff. And it's just this really bizarre setup of him as like a sort of real like New York family man just trying to come to terms with basically being like physically violated in a situation that he can't he feels that like he can't express himself in, refuses to believe, but knows is happening. And it's like a really oddly complex setup for him and his reaction makes the mm. film worth watching. I really enjoyed it it, like, Very,
1: it. it sounds like quite an interesting study about trauma, really, character study. He he really comes across as as almost like a rape victim. Uh,
0: and, and it's like so the fact that when, and in all fairness it's not spoilerish but when you see the aliens it's one of those things that when it cuts to him being abducted you can read it however you want I just assumed in the world of the film it was happening because it made it more interesting in the film um, yeah. the aliens just look shit they just look like toys effectively and what's happening to him is like silly but it's him it's him and his reactions to things is it's absolutely fantastic and it's on Amazon Prime if you fancy it, and I think everyone should watch it. Communion, 1989, mm. Christopher Walken.
1: Yeah, it was a good period for him. What yeah, was King, of New, King yeah. of New York was... Um,
0: was that 1990, the next year, King of New York?
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, yes, I made a single note, a single note beyond what I just kind of freewheeled off then. <sighs> Eric Clapton does the soundtrack. <laughs> okay. And Interesting choice. His, it's the laziest soundtrack I've ever encountered. So, as someone who plays guitar, and I'm sure people listeners play guitar, if they if someone says, "Oh, can you do a soundtrack for a film?" and you say yes, you know it's obviously going to be guitar based. What I wouldn't do is play the most basic reverb-laden guitar I could possibly get away with. So every scene is like, boo, boo, boo. Oh, Jesus. And you're like. That means that's three notes, Eric. How much do you get paid yeah. for that? It's, Are you
1: tuning it's, your guitar or composing?
0: It's absolutely bullshit. It just, it really is. <laughs> Every time he starts playing, I just sort of close my eyes and then I'll come on. Like I said, everything about the film, the entire plot is a cop out. The other actors, no one gives a shit about. It's all about Chris.
1: Okay, and that's on Prime.
0: That's on Prime.
1: I watched a film on ITVX oh, uh, okay. The Mothman Prophecies.
0: Oh, with Richard Gere, we've talked about this before, I think.
1: Yeah, I think we have a long time. I haven't seen this film since it came out in the cinema. This,
0: <laughs> this was one of our mutual friend Alex's favourite horror films. And I think you and
1: I, I'm intrigued
0: what <laughs> reaction you're going to have to it, because I think it'll be similar to mine.
1: <laughs> so Richard Gere plays a, a star journalist, happy marriage. But one light, night, is life has ruined when he and his wife were involved in a car crash, and she... She dies, but not before implying that she saw something before the crash. Some kind of Babadook, Babadook-like shadowy winged figure. A couple of years later, Gear is trying to put his life back together. And he's driving one night when his car breaks down. He goes to a nearby house where the incensed occupant pulls a gun on him, insisting this is the third time he's shown up on their property. A cop comes along, played by Laura Linney, to solve the mystery. So basically Richard Gere is stuck in this small town and he's not sure how he got there. And he gets sucked into this mystery involving weird shadowy figures and psychic energy and dire warnings of tragedies to come. Uh, yes. It's a, uh, when was this 2002 ish? I think um, stylishly shot. It's got a, a very trendy trip hoppy score by Tom and Andy. This some um, duo of quite seasoned trash horror composers, to be honest.
0: So they're not, they're not Charles and Eddie then?
1: No. <laughs> And it's Tom and Andy, one word, because that's what they did in the 90s, what can I say? Um, It's a quite monotonous film, I found, um, because regardless of ostensibly what's happening on the screen, whether it's like scares or mystery or joy or flirtation or partying, everything is burdened by this like grim, dark, self-serious tone. So you get like a town festival, which is shot like they're at a funeral and the music is incongruously creepy it's it, it, there's no dynamism in the film. I found, and, and I think, I think I've, I found what I found annoying about it watching it this time, which I found annoying the first time is that it's shallow and slightly trashy sense of mystery because it portrays a lot of confusion in a very surface way, like in plot twists and character responses, but it has no inherent sense of uncanniness Um, I mean, we talked, we've already talked about like The Shining and David Lynch and how films like that could, you know, they can make you feel discomforted or um, uneasy. And but this is a horror movie. It's like it's like almost like a horror movie for like true crime fans or something. It's like. They've, it's for people who don't really want a rational explanation of anything there's no ambiguity in Gears' character to, su- to suggest that he might be going bonkers there's no uncanniness there um, I guess this th- maybe that was a conscious decision because presumably we, it would be too unbecoming of Richard Gere's charms if he were actually to possibly be mental but it also might poke holes in the flimsy facade of plausibility that the film puts across. Uh, It's supposedly based on true events in multiple um, quotation marks. But, you know, there are bits where it says based on true events, but there's like a scene where he'll like the phone rings and he rips the cord out of the wall and it just keeps on ringing. And I was thinking, well, that didn't happen did it so it but it's more than that it's like this tediously contrived mystery script where Richard Gere will go he's obviously like a journalist so he'll go up to someone and and ask a question like oh what do you know and the other character will say something like we're not allowed to know and then the scene ends and it's like well well, wait there there's there's more to this surely like he'd just ask him another question well what does that mean what, what do you mean we're not allowed to know? That, that Why would can't exactly we know what? Exactly
0: be my next question. Yeah. What, what, what can't
1: we know? Perhaps. Or, or Can even you at least, least spe- speculate what? on what we know. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> it's. I, I I find it quite boring. Like it's really a series of interviews with people describing how they saw bright lights or their ears started bleeding or they got a headache, and it's not like Gear is incredulous. He just inhales everything they say, like like he's driven toward a supernatural explanation rather than the logical one. Um, So you don't even have that basic conflict and everyone he speaks to seems to either be a complete crank or willfully gullible. So basically your whole enjoyment of the film rests on your level of belief going into it, because no one in the film is going to like speak logically or rationally. Anyway, there is quite an impressive climactic scene involving a bridge collapse. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also highlights the stupidity of the movie's premise, because there's this whole prophecy about something terrible happening with a local factory. Right. But the terrible thing that happens involves a bridge, which is not a factory. It means it's near the factory, but it's not the factory. So it's it's it. That's not what the prophecy said, is it? And and then at the very end, it says the cause of the cause of this bridge collapse according to the film was never determined it said but i looked this up and according to a local newspaper from from the time from 1976 official investigations in 1971 determined it was caused by stress corrosion cracking in a suspension chain so there you go there's your explanation which is what you assume
0: wasn't it it's it's obviously the the age of the bridge so you You, you, you
1: and you'd think that a journalist would you know, probably well, been a you're,
0: you're just from that tiny bit of research. You're a better journalist than Richard Gere in this film.
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was quite boring and just crap, really. But it yeah, it felt, felt great to me. Yeah,
0: a very great film because I remember my, my sense of watching it. Sorry, go on, finish what you were saying. I don't know. No, I'm.
1: I, I think we're probably going to end up saying the same thing. But yeah, it just it. Um, I found it boring and. And trashy in a way that was it was far more weighted towards like I keep thinking true crime I mean it's not really a true crime it's it's more of a mystery thing but it has that same quality of like um, one of these trashy documentaries you get on Netflix where it's like something weird has happened and because there's no like definitive explanation for it it's like you don't like you're watching it, and it's clear that you like you don't really want there to be a rational explanation, because that would just ruin the kind of mystery of it. And it's the same here, really. It's like, well, but which is fine if there is a genuine mystery, but there is no mystery here. It's just this guy is traumatized, and then a bridge collapse has got nothing to do with anything supernatural whatsoever.
0: But yet the film is determined, determined. Yeah. to. Um, it, it exists in the same part of my mind as the number 23 with Jim Carrey, yeah. where it's like, you know, this this thing exists and that's it. And then the whole film just pushes towards, like you say, really vague, vague comments and, and utterances that
1: are just never like followed up on. And then something happens and it's like, oh, this is all a mystery, isn't it? And yeah, like, like everyone they're speaking to, all the characters are just kind of in on it. And no yeah. one's actually looking for a rational answer. It yeah. just seems silly. To me it it, it, it
0: I, the, the film like i said it just it just felt very great to me and i remember watching it and because alice likes it so much i mean i don't know what his view is now because this came out what in like 2002 or something yeah but i remember w- watch watching it with him and like wanting to enjoy it more or see something that he saw in it but like you see he's a big true crime fan so watching it it's like well mm. this is a lot of bollocks isn't it it's not going to be something like zodiac where it's it's completely split down the middle and it's like well you know make up your own mind here's here's a load of very detailed research that you can and even if you don't get your answer from the film you can spiral off and look into it yourself and it becomes a, a multimedia thing it's just like a really flat film that has no answers and then kind of then says oh you know well that was mysterious wasn't it and you're like well it might have yeah. been mysterious for you but it was also shit wasn't it
1: yeah, it's also not mysterious because actually it's got a <laughs> completely rational explanation and but it's it's that trashy sense of mystery combined with the lack of ambiguity in the Richard Gere character, which means that that's why it's boring, because. If it had been a case of right, well, you know, there's some ambiguity that he could actually just be going completely nuts um, and actually just is deeply traumatized, then. Okay, I could get on board with that because it'd be understandable. But there isn't any of that. He's just a kind of like he's almost like just a bit of a swashbuckling hero, really. Um, to, yeah, Mossman prophecies crap. I watched. I,
0: I watched the conjuring. The devil made me do it from 2021. And um, this is a TMT. This is a two-minute trashing because. I fancy Vera Farmiga, and mm-hmm. I, even more, I fancy Patrick Wilson. <laughs> <George. laughs> Hashtag Space Station Seventy Six. And um, I, I said, I don't think we've seen this because this is like twenty twenty one. So it was on Netflix, and we checked it on, and I just completely. I, I always look. I I don't know if you remember, but I think it may have been this time last year, or know this time last year, or the year before. I watched a lot of you know the conjuring what's the other one there was the conjuring there's the is the sinister, um, sinister uh, oh was it yeah. no what was the what was the one with that really soft ron livingston in it um, yeah, with the, which whether anyway all you know, yeah, the, yeah. all those films that everyone mixes up in their minds basically cuz the, so, the
1: so. bloomhouse cycle of, yeah. yeah
0: the bloomhouse stuff right and by the way out of all those sinister's clearly the, the absolute best with the worst sequel sinister best soundtrack but it's the it's the best of the last Well, 2012. So the last 15 years now of horror films, um, of the of this oeuvre, but The Conjuring the Devil made me do it. I remember it like kind of enjoying The Conjuring, and then I can't remember The Conjuring too because they all they all bleed together in my mind. But I watched this, and I thought. Like I know they've got Annabelle and all this stuff, but this for me was just—I don't even really want to go into it. It's, You know, demonologists, uh, mm. Endler and Warren, and again, their entire life is a load of bollocks, and everything they ever do or say is a load of bollocks. And it, and it, it does that whole thing of we're well, kind of like the Mothman prophecies, where it, it presents everything as like, oh, is this supernatural? And you're like, well, the problem is like with communion, right? I do not believe in alien abductions, right? I don't, I don't really. That's not my thing. So when you, if a film is entirely based on that and and presenting it as real, and the film itself isn't very good, there's nothing interesting for someone like me to grab hold of, mm. apart from Christopher Walken's acting. But then, with this, when it's saying, "Oh, this was the first murder trial where demonic possession is claimed as defense and and it's like, well, but if you don't believe in demonic possession the film has to be interesting in other areas to to maintain the interest of those who just don't completely dive into demonology and this film takes that whole sort of stance of you know yes the existence of the supernatural is real but puts it forward in like a really kind of forensic way but through the medium of a really stock average horror film with just Mm. filled with just the most it's pedestrian plot twists and i was watching it and of course and i was i was kind of losing patience with it and and i was every time patrick wilson came on screen i'd say i fancy you pat but that's not enough that's not enough for <laughs> sorry pat <laughs> and you know this is nearly two hours long and it's just there's one person they visit and the they say oh Let's go and talk to this bloke. And the fact that it turns out to be the entire linchpin of the entire plot is fucking fortuitous, let me tell you. And there's no like tension in it. There's nothing interesting happens in it. It's all stuff we've seen before. It just feels really regurgitated. And at the end of it, when they were tying it back into this, this sort of canon of, of the other films in the Conjuring series, I just it just sort of sickened to me. And I thought, you're acting like this is part of some sort of vivid tapestry of horror when it's just a load of like schlocky shit that's getting really tiresome <laughs> and and the, and the and then the bit that i th- almost thought i might turn this off is when the soundtrack started giving me the distant foghorn uh, mm. the, oh come on <laughs> come on so yeah this was this was a tough watch and when it finished i <laughs> I, I remember when when I watch films with Faye and we we, we have a food and we watch the film and when it finishes she'll just like sort of look go and look at her phone if it's bad and I'll stand up to turn everything off and I'll just say the same thing every time and that thing is
1: that wasn't very good
0: <laughs> and that's what that's what this it's kind of pulled that out must of be hour. a
1: common refrain in your household. Um, yeah, I think you're onto something there though about the the, the forensic element. I think that's probably what. The problem is with Mothman as well is that it's when it's got, it's like a schlocky ghost story, paranormal thing, alien thing, whatever, but it's got this kind of facade of reality to it through its forensic element, like as if it's being investigated as like real science or real journalism. And you're just thinking, well, so if. If any of it were real, if any of these people were serious scientists or serious journalists, then this would all just be blown out of the water, but they're not like you mentioned the conjuring 2, and I'm pretty sure that's the one which is set around the Enfield poltergeist, the one in London, so you've got all these like uh apples and pears kind of cockney uh people um and Nothing that that one i mean that whole case is just obvious bullshit and it was proved to be bullshit at the time like there was a documentary soon afterwards maybe a bbc documentary where you know like where the kids are saying oh yeah we were just messing about and so well you know that didn't take much did it to work out that that wasn't real so yeah it's the it's the faux um legitimacy that makes these films bad
0: yeah i think is, i kind of i can't really think of an example off the top of my head but it, it's it's the yeah the word you use is, is a facade it's just uh, you know i've got no problem with films that you know delve into the machinations of something or like the um the extreme specifics of a certain um job or vocation like uh what's the one recently i watched where it's um what was it the Barberian Sound Studio, and I watched something else yep. that was, oh, like, oh, Blowout was one I was thinking of, where it's, like, focused on something. But when it's just made out as if, like, th- this is real, you know, this is a real investigation, you think it's
1: not, yeah. is it? It's not. No, it's really not. <clears throat> so Yes, they're just the Warrens and, like, known charlatans. Okay, um, well, I'll move on to something a bit better then. Where, where is The Conjuring, The Devil... Where's Prada? What was it called? <laughs> the Devil can
0: fuck off. Um, it that is on Netflix.
1: Right. It,
0: it uh, would be so funny if someone went through like a whole ritual to like summon the devil, and they're like, "Come to me, my dark lord," and then he, he like in a puff of smoke appears in front of them, and he's like, "I am here. What do you command of me?" And they say, "Right, just fuck off, mate." Just fuck off. And he's, he's like, like, oh, I like it. And then, it's like, Why did you bother in the first place? Call me, really, when you think
1: about it. So I could tell you to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, let's move to Prime now, because it's about time.
0: It's you time did, like, Prime. A, a salty sea dog down the pub in some, like, Cornish... I uh, oh, summoned the devil once my ear arrived in front of me. Large as life. Oh god, what happened next? Oh, he told him to fuck off. <laughs> like fair play, mate. I'm buying you a pint of, of water. Because
1: <laughs> you're clearly pissed. <laughs> um right. Yes, on Prime, I watched the Blair Witch project. Mm. Uh which is obviously a, a nineteen ninety nine indie mega hit and It's a found footage movie which concerns three young documentary filmmakers who uh, set off into the Maryland woods in search of the titular Blair Witch, which is a local myth dating back decades, uh, 100 years in various forms. The important thing is they're searching for something mysterious. They don't have cell phones. Uh, They are going to get lost and they're not going to know what's stalking them Uh, now. This is 99 and found footage was not new
0: can i just not, just i just yeah. want to preface what you're about to say yeah. is um i remember watching this in the cinema and it, and it deeply affected me because i would have been oh, i would have been like 16 or something oh, and yeah. it, it was one of the first horror films i saw on the cinema and and i have like really strong memories of it but i've never revisited it
1: nor the hmm. pc video games oh so i think we're going to get to this because this is I'm, yeah i'm really intrigued by this um yeah um, as i said it's it wasn't new, not or, or even new to the genre of the found footage thing, because like *Cannibal Holocaust*, that was made in like 1980, and that used found footage elements. And then there was a film called *The Last Broadcast*, which famously beat *Blair Witch* to the punch in '98. Although I should add that *Blair Witch* was filmed in '97, so it, it didn't copy *Last Broadcast*. Anyway, um, and uh, anyway, *Blair Witch* stands apart from the other films of that genre, really, just. Mostly because of the way its marketing worked, it created this kind of ambiguity in the minds of audiences. There generally was a moment where its status as a work of fiction was mildly in doubt, because they used the internet to amazing effect. They created this website and they issued like these faux missing persons reports and stuff. And it's just such an interesting time capsule because what they did literally, it couldn't have happened before the internet and it couldn't happen in the internet era as it stands today so it really was just a, a very special specific moment in time and there are other reasons for the ambiguity and possibly why it couldn't be done today perhaps because the film was intended as an entirely improvised production like apparently they had these core event script events that They were based only on, like, notes left around in the forest for the actors. And the actors were genuinely scared and harassed at night by the filmmakers. Like, which makes moments in this movie, like, where you hear the sounds of, like, little girls giggling outside the tent. It gives it a kind of raw terror because, you know, like, it's famously this scene in Alien where John Hurt's stomach explodes like the the actors didn't know that was going to happen so capturing those expressions is quite uh quite a unique experience i saw it at the time in fact on halloween in 99 and i remember thinking in the cinema and i think i i remember thinking this this would work really well on a small tv with headphones on Mm -hmm. and i don't think it really worked as a cinema experience because you got the wobbly camera effect because obviously these are like cheap cameras they're using and plus you got the uh, the film relies on the power of suggestion above anything plus my personal inherent displeasure of watching horror films at the cinema with overhyped screaming teenagers so there was that and so here we are now and I think it works better than ever now because it is a scary and unbelievably intense film, which is almost entirely convincing in terms of the performances. And it's the only film with uh, well, this is quite a unique thing for me. It's the only film to capture the sheer complete blackness of a forest at night because um, I've been in a forest at night with, and, and it's so dark that it's like almost like it, it kind of like, it's not like dark as in, oh, you know, is there some shapes in there? It's like you cannot see anything. And it's the way that it's... it captures most of its fear from sound in that way because of that darkness. And and it does, and this is why it's better than other found footage films. It constantly constantly answers the question of why this is being filmed because, well, first of all, it's framed as a documentary, but it also does it by like having Heather's character explain that it's all she's got left, sort of thing. But also having like characters rip the camera out of a hand and everything like along those lines is acknowledged within the frame. So, yeah, for me, it's the best found footage film because of the quality of the acting and the methods used in its production, which did border on harassment, probably, but it was worth it. And I think it still works even away from that marketing campaign, just because it's an effectively creepy horror film that contains no actual violence so i think yeah still holds up and yeah after all this time like i know we talk about like certain filmmakers will say oh you know like lament the fact that their movie is going to be watched on like a smartphone (laughs) sort of thing but a, a film like this works on a small screen up close headphones boom you capture the experience as it was meant to be seen
0: yeah, I, I think that you always have to work towards the lowest common denominator as well. Like, it, it, things will change and people will like. I I never watch films on my phone. I, I would, I just would. I can't think of a situation I've ever been where I think I'll watch something on my phone because <laughs> like, I don't know. I listen to podcasts or whatever. But yeah, so. But then it doesn't mean you have to just give up and make shit films. But with um <laughs> with this though, I I i remember watching it at the time and i'd never i think like was it the first well, i know you said it wasn't the first but in the 90s then of like say my generation that it was the first fan footage film
1: yeah i mean it was a, i mean like i mentioned like cannibal holocaust before but i mean that had bits in it which were meant to be fan footage but it was quite uncomfortable mix of just shoddy drama and because i think if i was footage
0: if I was in the queue to watch this, if I was like a 17 year old Brit in the queue to go in and watch the Blue Witch Project and you were behind me and you said, Oh, it's actually not the first found footage film. It's actually kind of a Holocaust from 1980. <laughs> and then push your glass. Up and it was, I think, Oh, that's a cunt. Is it? Cause it's not like there was a load of, there's not like, no. that was like that was the first. And there's 18 years preceding this of constant found footage yeah. for, for a generation. It was the first.
1: Absolutely. And it was, and it's missing the point anyway, because it, it, regardless even if it was the 20th i mean it still did something with its marketing that was unique and also i've seen lots of fan footage films and this is still the most convincing one in terms of like the acting and stuff like that just the basic stuff so it's not but 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 it's better than them so regardless of what it's coming out to an
0: audience that isn't tired of the genre though do you know what i mean it's yeah absolutely like... yeah, yeah. yeah 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 it, it was like... totally
1: original and of course it was so cheap to make and it made so much but i think it was the most most it might still be the most successful independent film ever made i know up to that point i think something like mad max was the most successful and then that came along and it it must have surpassed. well actually i'm trying to th-
0: has there been has there been anything Close, can we look that up quickly? I say we, can you look that up quickly to see if, if it's because I would assume that would still hold as the most um successful independent film?
1: Uh, most successful. Mm-hmm.
0: I'll, I'll insert some muzak over this bit, like, dun, 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 dun.
1: Well, I'll just do that either way, yeah. Um, well highest grossing well that's a bit different isn't it
0: what's the highest grossing then
1: uh, i'm just looking through a few here Juno. that was <sighs> 6.5 well, it made 230 million against 6.5 million budget i mean but the you know like goodwill hunting is a huge one but still cost 10 million <laughs> bloody hell like the budget for Blair Witch estimated between two hundred and five hundred thousand, and it made two hundred and sixty million. So that
0: feels pretty comfortably still. I mean,
1: and I, I suspect just, a lot. I would imagine that most of that budget would have been on marketing. Marketing. So I do remember it was heavily marketed at the time, and they're really leaning into the whole internet campaign. But it did genuinely start as something quite. Grassroots.
0: roots what's really nice about this as well is the fact that it was and obviously didn't know at the time the impact it would have but not only was it so so successful and so groundbreaking the fact that here we are you know 20 plus years later saying or 25 years later nearly saying like it's still really good which yes, is it still really it's works. a really lo- lovely situation to be in and like high five to the directors for because you know that that year. Oh, sorry, I'm looking at my next film now. You know, in 19, 9, 2000, the Matrix came out, and I know that, I know that people. I've talked to. I haven't watched the Matrix in a very long time. I have watched it and like, yeah, it's it's really showing its age. You know, these films that came mm-hmm. out which, as as CG took off. They they don't hold up as well, apart from through through sort of rose tinted lenses. So it's just really cool that it just relies on like really vintage old school kind of magic, push it, pushing the actors and doing it in that sort of. Um, evil Daddy, uh, yes. you know, work with what you got, kind of Robert Rodriguez sort of thing, and and it comes up with this. So that's really cool. I think yeah. I will watch that again. I feel I like it will be. Yeah. I feel like it's going to be one of those films that, like, I will watch with my child when when they're old enough to, mm. and it'll still have the impact, you know, to appreciate the craft. Yes, because there's no, I, there's nothing that comes like it, literally to me the found footage genre. Whew, Like, that is like an instant spike when it came out. And I am struggling, apart from one that I didn't mind. And it was like, you know, the the haunting of so-and-so, so-and-so a few years ago about a priest that I didn't mind. But there's not a not skyline, Um, but there's not many that I can find footage from that I would point to.
1: Hell House LLC was quite good up to a Mm. point. The two sequels, not so
0: much not so much but yeah that was interesting as well that'll probably be the second one i check on actually because yeah the first that's uh the first one is good but the other the other two oh my word
1: yeah i know i suppose the other thing about blair which is we talk about like success is that it showed people like is it jason bloomhouse the bloomhouse guy anyway
0: jason jason bloom i think it is
1: Oh Bloom and then yeah, he called it Bloomhouse. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. So I like it showed that you could basically be hugely profitable in the horror genre with not much money. And actually that is and that's really I mean like Bloomhouse is have been a variable quality, but there's no denying that it like definitely created a resurgence in interest in horror movies and i think low budget horror is an absolute breeding ground for directors of the future Now, so you know so it shows that it, it's a, it could be a really profitable model which is good and then maybe you know bloomhouse leads to stuff like a24 and you start getting more interesting takes on we talked, in the genre. We
0: talked about this before i think we're um pardon me we're um uh, horror films are the, the the cheapest to make and they can also uh, sort of be the most experimental and really bring up the best in budding filmmakers and they can be really interesting stuff like Terrifier um, which I tried to get my mum to watch yeah. it was so funny, yeah. did I tell you about that? I think have I mentioned that in the no. podcast when my it must have been because uh, they they look after my son on on uh, on a Tuesday and they came over a couple of weeks ago and they were like, oh, we're starting to watch horror films for, you know, the Halloween season. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, you know, we'll watch The Thing and blah, blah. And I said, oh, you should watch Terrifier. You should watch Terrifier. And my dad dad was like, what's it about? And I said, oh, just, just watch it, really. And then if you enjoy it, watch the second one. And my mum was like, oh, yeah, we'll give it a go. I, I know no one here. I don't talk about my mum often. My mum is not going to enjoy Terrifier. <laughs> She's not going to enjoy that film. But I just love the thought of her coming on and telling me off for, for like tricking her into watching it because it's still full on. Um, oh, by the way, I was at the um, Comic Con on the weekend
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, they had. Um, Tell they me had someone
1: the, was dressed up like the clown.
0: Well, they, it, well, they had the clown and it, ugh, I don't know what they're called. Uh, when it's not just a mask, but it's like the, the torso part, the top of the torso. So oh, you can yeah. like, tuck it in the clothes, like I guess a cowl sort of thing. There right. was someone dressed up as Batman that my son high-fived, which is awesome. Good. And and then he high-fived Batman. And as Batman walked off, he was like, bye, Batman. And then he turned around and then someone said, you're going to high-five me too? And someone dressed up as Heath Ledger's Joker was there. And, mm-hmm. and, and Axel literally went, no and, and like, recoiled in horror no, you and, like, don't so, look like, anything
1: like Jack Nicholson
0: <laughs> you look terrifying and I said oh your costume's obviously working because you're scaring the shit out of him and uh, and then we saw someone dressed up as like a really smooth devil and I was like this is great, I used to really this cosplay to me used to really piss me off because it was either like blokes trying to look cool or women just trying to like show their figures off but yes. when someone's like, dressed as a robot or they put a load of effort in with like industrial rubber as Batman I think good, good, yes. good, good, good. Um, so yeah, the, the Blair Witch—that's really interesting. I feel like I will revisit that at a certain. Are any of the sequels good? Are they mm. made four. They made four they, PC video games that I could never get to run. But what about uh, the sequels?
1: I only watched the first sequel. I don't know if there are others. Oh, they did a reboot, didn't they? Anyway, the uh, the Book of Shadows, and that was just standard teen horror Fair
0: did you ever watch the Lionel Blair which the third one? <laughs> Didn't watch that one actually. Just yeah. A yeah, like gentle humour. Gentle people radio a,
1: for humour.
0: People in a in a forest can you can you hear tap dancing and jovial laughter? <laughs> um I was um I you talking about just before we move on, like that, the eternal forest blackness. I stayed uh it's a good few years ago you now, um, on a it was like a two-couple holiday, and we stayed on a golf course. And the the golf course, there was like we had a hot tub and it backed onto a forest. And I know Mm. what you mean. It's so dark. When you're in a forest, because we went for walks a bit pissed, I had to check if my eyes were open. I know, yeah. I had to touch my face like, are my
1: eyes shut? It's sort of like (laughs) a swallowing darkness, which makes you, it completely twists your sense of reality. I know exactly what you mean. Like, sometimes we're like, it's quite frightening at that point where it's like I I need to see something to make sure my eyes still actually work. <laughs> I, I, yeah,
0: I need to see something to have like some sort of not just like know where I am this forest, but just to like uh, just get like the basic sense of being <laughs> a human back. Because I, I you know and of course every kind of cr- tr- like crack really of a leaf will like. You, what's happening around me? Because I cannot see anything. I cannot see anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was uh, it was unbelievable. So yeah, it is a a true a true horror. Um, oh, I enjoy talking about that. Thank you for that, Rupert. Um, I'm going to talk about a film that I am going to just well. I'll just say right. I watched The Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp and Frank Langella. Fine. Um, and and I think for my money, The Ninth Gate and Secret Window would be a great back to back. And I think they're both okay. up there as my favorite films they would probably be my top 25 favorite films yeah uh, yeah because i'm not a massive like roman polanski fan uh like i i don't mind a few of his films but i suppose i'll do the review first then i'll talk about why i fancy it so the ninth gate is a 1999 uh sort of a more of a thriller more than a horror uh directed by roman polanski with johnny Depp is a sort of rare Book, not so much seller, but a, a, an acquirer, and he is of dubious moral standing, and gets asked by the beautifully voiced Frank Langella, who's in the bar, by the way, and I'll talk about his voice more in a second. Remind me, um he gets asked by Frank Langella, who's clearly just hip deep into, into into Satanism, to acquire these these three books that have been held by these these three individuals because apparently. When you get the correct readings from one of them only one mm. of them is a true original apparently you can summon the devil and uh there's there's a funny bit at the start where he offers him like a, an unseen amount of money to do this and and frank langella's like well you know i know mine's not the no mine's obviously a forgery so i need to need to get the original and then dean corso uh johnny depp's character says how would you know it's not forgery and frank langella just sort of raises an eyebrow and johnny depp says ah the devil didn't turn up so you know it's dark you know it's dark mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just this wonderful kind of it's almost right i think of this film as almost a book nerds indiana jones because it's a lengthy film. It's a wonderfully lengthy film of like, uh, it's just over two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. And it's basically Johnny Depp, like just smoking fags, drinking whiskey and making his way around Europe and just getting frightened and panicking, but just and like running around with like a really nerdy knapsack with a, with an old book in it. And then just like looking through pages, making notes and having conversations with sort of oddballs through Europe. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's almost like a horror, a gentle horror Indiana Jones. But what I really, really, really love about this film is the sound design as well, because there's it's a simple, it's a single, like I think it's either a four or six note sort of melodic motif that's repeated. And it's repeated on different instruments at different times. And it kind of hits me in the same way as the game with Michael Douglas, because Michael yeah. Douglas and the, and the sound in that film of scuffed footsteps on dry stone and his wonderful voice is kind of um reiterated here with frank Langella's really dulcet tones and johnny depp's sort of low mumble and just sort of oddly twee music every now and again and just him scenes endless scenes of him just like smoking and leafing through books and pages turning it's almost this asmr-ish luxuriousness Hmm. so I really, really like this film. It's I wouldn't, there's nothing scary about it. There's nothing scary about it. It's just a film that I luxuriated. And sometimes when they when he's going to these mansions in, in like Italy or whatever, or France and Spain, Portugal, it's mainly set. Uh, he, you almost look at the backdrops and think, is that a matte painting? Are those books real or is that just a painting? And it just gives it this wonderfully sort of stagey internal world feel to it mm. that, that I'm completely on board with, and something I mentioned before on the podcast, and one of the things I love about sort of political '70s thrillers and intrigue movies is the scene where someone says they're going to have to get to the bottom of something, and they realize they're completely out of their depth, and they just and there's a scene where they're sat in their bed smoking and they're panicking because they don't know what to do next and they know their life is in risk. <laughs> and there's a scene in this it reminded me actually of the scene with Johnny Depp in again this. Uh, secret window and Sleepy Hollow, where he goes to visit the witch in Sleepy Hollow. Yes, and she, she leaps at him, and it's a hard cut, and then it cuts to him leaving the, storming away from the hut and saying to his partner, "We're leaving." It's like one of the funniest scenes in the film, Chris Walken again and that good. But in this, there's another scene where something someone says to him, like how his life is in danger and everything is real. And, you know, he is there's going to be this cult going from whatever. And then it just cuts to him sitting on a bed, smoking a fag, just tapping his lip and looking straight forward. Like as if, you know, you know, if there was like a like an audible monologue, it would be going, Ah right, <laughs> okay, dokie then. Um, and there's so many scenes of this where something scares him. He like he sort of like shakily pulls out like a crumpled fag from a packet and lightly. Like, it's just brilliant. And I, it's not scary. It's kind of a a feel good horror if that makes sense because you mm. can just enjoy the locations and and where it takes you. And there's a girl
1: luxurious horror.
0: <laughs> yeah, my third album, and also the name of my arse. But there's, there's um, a girl in this called Emmanuel Seigneur, and I thought that it was um, Julie Delpy from American Werewolf in Paris, and like, I only realised now she's pretty. I think she's Roman Polanski's wife, uh, uh, right, okay. which is why she was cast in this. And I, as, as the film was starting, and I was looking at um, – the the casting i thought oh, it's his wife he cast his own wife in a film right yeah but she's i think i assume because she's so sort of statuesque she was a model and he he was married to whatever but her presence in this film as someone of she's kind of an unknown entity in this film kind of turns up and helps and hinders johnny depp is great because she's got this kind of smirking blankness that works for the role so there Mm. doesn't in in the film there's not really a weak link even even through that him just casting his own wife as a main role um love it and it's one of my favorite films and i could watch it again tonight quite happily quite frankly
1: where is it streaming
0: this was on oh, hang on. Right, I'm gonna do this because I, I keep on getting told off by my brother for this, so I'm actually gonna do some. I'm not gonna guess, I'm gonna do some. So just watch. You're it gonna do on, more journalism
1: than Richie Gere did for the entire <laughs> In Mothman the
0: mothmas Propsies Uh yeah, it's on Prime
1: Video. And it's excellent. Video. Um, okay. I, I will speak to you now about a film called No One Will Save You. Ooh. which is on disney plus
0: is this still like a polish film or something no oh, okay. this I'm
1: thinking something. is a very recent horror film recommended by laszlo buckets oh uh
0: Our occasional co-host but constant leather
1: <laughs> it's a slightly annoying title no one will save you it's it's like you remember the film but you won't quite remember what it's called so you want to recommend it to people and you'd be like oh, damn it what's it called and Someone will sit and I want, yeah, it's one of them. Needs something catcher, but anyway, it's about oh, this that, thing.
0: that one you watch that's called, like, look up at the sky or
1: something. Yeah, or it's you know, it's always, yeah, it's, it's always yeah. something like that, or yeah. look, look round the corner, or like, you know, it's like, oh, just,
0: or is that you, or is it her with me and them? And think, just well, don't I make
1: it like... a sentence, that's all I ask. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a single woman is, she lives in this idyllic town and she builds dinky models for a living she's got quite a quite an idyllic lifestyle really um but she's seemingly hated by all of the citizens of the town um so no one will speak to her and she's kind of kind of a hermit i suppose one day she's attacked a a, a, a
0: recluse you might say
1: oh i see what you did there it's a band that is um So anyway, yeah, one day she's attacked by a strange creature in her house and she manages to overcome it. Um, Then she tries to escape into the town and actually escape the town itself. But it turns out the creature wasn't alone and there are others. And these creatures may be aliens and they may be capturing the minds and bodies of the town citizens. So it's uh, quite an escalation. Um, Sort of a messed up survival slash body horror movie, I guess. It's a little bit of signs in there. There's a bit of invasion of the body snatchers, even possibly hints of colour out of space in the weirder moments. It's very nicely shot and edited and acted and quite brief, sub 90 minutes. And crucially, it's a pretty much almost entirely wordless film. There's basically no dialogue in the whole film. Um, mostly because it's just focused on her and these creatures trying to attack her. I did find the wordlessness aspect a little bit contrived at times because it's fine when it's just the main actress, but then there are these scenes where she goes into the town and confronts people. Um, or it looks like she's going to go up to them, and confront them, but they all hate her for reasons the film holds back, but, but they will all just like, Grunt at her or spit at her, which, I mean, it tells the story, but it doesn't really make any sense because it kind of brings you out of the movie because you're just conscious of the fact that it's actively avoiding dialogue when really someone would say something. But Anyway, it's a it's a very modern type of horror thriller insofar as everything is a mystery. Like, uh, who is this woman? Like, what's she done to make everyone hate her? Where's her family? why are these creatures attacking her on one hand this makes it quite compelling on the other hand piling mystery upon mystery it does feel a little bit calculated at times like it's trying to cling desperately to your attention um and of course it makes it slightly harder to empathize as well but it does all come together and answers most questions by the end Uh, i think the end the very end will be very divisive because it is an ambiguous and interesting ending. Not revelatory in the way that, say, the ending of Arrival was, but still quite interesting way to finish it off. And it's a well-made film and it's worth watching. And Brian Duffield, the director, is one to watch. I I mean, his previous, his first film was some rom-com I've never heard of, but he was, the writer on, or at one of the writers on Underwater, which I know you liked, and also Love and yeah. Monsters, which we both liked a lot. So definitely one to watch. Yeah, so this one, to remind you of the slightly bland title, No One Will Save You. Disney screen- Plus. I've,
0: screen- I've screenshotted it, so I, I won't, because will often after these podcasts say, like, what was Rupert's film of the week? Any good horrors? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember them. And then Because I like do the podcast and I listen through on the edit, the third time I was like, I can't be bothered to scan through. But uh, one of our listeners, Transwell, has kindly said he's going to take notes of the films we talk about, so from episode 80 onwards, they will be on a spreadsheet so we can actually refer back should we need to. So thank you very much, Transwell, we love you. I have to talk about a Godfrey Ho film now, and I've been really looking forward to this, because I watched with Transvaal Ninja, the Violent Sorcerer. So watch one of his horror films. Well, it's well, I think I think it just confused IMDb because it's like action, fantasy, horror. They may as well have question marks after them. 1982. Um, and on the cover it says starring Angela Mao. Not even sure if she's in the film to be honest. Um, so this this is I'm just going to read out the synopsis right because this is probably the easiest way to ease ease this whole review off so ninja the violent sorcerer 1982, 130 minutes a murderer with the help of chinese vampires does battle with the ghost of a dead gambling lord's wife and the gambling lord's living brother that's not accurate to what happens in the film but (laughs) it's what's what the synopsis says so the film starts off and it's typical godfrey old fashion it's two films just like smashed together like a child with a wrestler from WWF and one from WCW. And it's a guy saying he is the, he is like the, 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 the Lord of gambling. And then someone says, Oh, but what about the Lord of gambling called like Tony? And then what about the master of gambling, Jeff? And he's a like, master of gambling, but I'm the Lord of gambling. So we have to have a gamble off or whatever. And then it cuts to this bloke turning up. Uh, I think his name's like Dave, and he, obviously they're all Asian, turns up and sits down and the lord of gambling says to the master of gambling, oh, I, I have a, we gamble and if you lose, it's your life. It literally doesn't specify what he would win. He literally doesn't go that far and instantly the master of gambling goes, you're on. I would, I would, I would ask through the questions. We're in that situation. Um, so what actually happens is they they play, and bear in mind this is all about gambling, lords of gambling, masses of gambling, kings of gambling, whatever they want to call it. This is the only gambling in the film, and that does come back later on wonderfully. So they effectively play one hand of five-card stud poker, and every now and again it'll cut back to the other film, which shows a man dressed as a zombie looking into a crystal ball dancing. And he, through his dancing... And bringing back vampires, which he does by dancing by holding a wooden sword, opening coffins, and sellotaping receipts to zombies' faces. They That changes his card from a three of hearts to an ace, and he wins. So he says to the king of gambling, Ha ha ha, I've won, now you've got to kill yourself. And then it's a smash cut to this bloke, Dave. In his room, and his butler. <laughs> Again, this is all kind of set like a really like it's just in between. It could be the eighties, it could be the nineteen hundreds, and he says, "Get me, get me my son, get Leslie." So <laughs> Leslie comes in, sixteen year old, genuinely Leslie, by the way, turns up, and uh, he he calls him in to basically say, "Don't look at this." So the butler turns him around, and then he just blows his brains out like in his house, like days after the fact, not in front of this guy who was beating him a gambling. So it's just probably from a scene from another film, quite frankly. And then, and then that happens. And the uncle turns to the son, Oh, it's not the butler, it's the uncle. The uncle turns to the, to Leslie and says, oh, you know, just forget about this. And then it cuts to another man in a, in a cemetery being visited by the ghost of the man who's just killed himself, the ghost of the like master of gambling yes. who says, we need to kill the Lord of gambling because of what he did to my husband. Uh Work with me, brother. And I thought, well, so he's the uncle, but he's a different <laughs> actor. He's a different <laughs> man. So, right. Okay. So then this guy says, well, we're going to take this bad guy down. A bad guy who was referred to as Baker, Barker, and Parker at different times throughout the film. <laughs> by, by, like, training to fight Chinese vampires. And Chinese vampires, and apparently this is true, because their joints seize up. They hop around with their arms straight out in front of them with silly hats on. Mm-hmm. So, so then it cuts to this uncle learning to fight vampires by standing on a clifftop and dance, dancing. And he gets attack, attacked by a Chinese vampire, but he bests this Chinese vampire. And then the Chinese vampire says, oh, actually, I'm your mate. I'm just dressed up. Uh, and the the uncle says, why are you attacking me? And he says, oh, well, I was told to meet you here. And that's the explanation that we get, like why he's turned up this cliff up to meet him, why he's dressed as a vampire, why he started a fight. That's left up to the viewer's imagination, quite frankly. <laughs> then it cuts to a lot of vampires attacking someone we've not seen yet, called Brian, and <laughs> in a room, small room, someone then walks in and picks up the like the it looks like um, the knob that's been unscrewed off the end of like a curtain rail, and he right. s- sort of sort of smirks at it, and then it cuts to something else, and then it cuts to someone else <laughs> challenging the Lord of Gambling, and he says, "I'm the best gambler." No, I am. And they call two people in who says, well, you don't deserve to gamble with me. You have to gamble with my henchmen. So then it's a woman mm. who has two dice and she has a saucer, like a tea saucer. And she just starts like throwing the dice up and they catch them on the saucer. And they're always on a six. And then she throws them so hard into the wall that they stick and they have sixes on them. And then the other guy's henchman throws two dice up from the air and then cuts them in half as they land. And then they still, if you imagine throwing two dice up in the air, right. Mm -hmm. And then swinging it like a saucer so hard, so quickly that it cuts through them. And they still have enough downward momentum to stick in the bays of a snooker table. Right, right. And of, but of course he they've come up ones not sixes so he loses in this game that where the odds aren't set out beforehand so they even though he stabs himself with the arm for some reason they decide to just blind him by sticking darts in his eyes and we never see him again so the uncle who was on the cliff top with his friend who was dressed up as a vampire for no apparent reason says right we need to find James Webber because he'll help us take down the Lord of Gambling. They meet James Webber. he is a drunkard, and they say and he says, I'll help you and I'll stop drinking, but I'm gonna need my friends Anne, Vicky, and Rick. So then it cuts to I I assume what is a different film of him it's like a few scenes of a war film, and then he just lights someone's fag and they nod at each other, and then she's his mate again. Um and he, he this happens three times with Anna, Vicky and Rick, but he only needs he only needs Rick. Really, for what he does, well, um,
1: yeah, obviously.
0: Rick he finds in a bar in the middle of like a sort of comedy '80s bar fight with everyone like smashing bottles over each other's heads, with sort of like plinky plonky piano music in the background. Godfrey, Ho cameos as the barman in the only part of this film that's funny and meant to be funny. He in this fight scene, he is like this skinny guy and he's behind the bar and he keeps on trying to bottle people. But when they're not looking but they always turn around and look at him as he's about to bottle them so he kind of goes back <laughs> behind the bar and it just keeps happening and eventually he bottles somebody like claps really camply to himself like he's really pleased um, Leslie the, the suicide victim son at the start of the film is played by three different actors of vastly different differing ages so, so when we see him he's like a, like a 12 then he's in his 20s and then it's just some literally some bloke in his 40s at the end of the film there's a fight that happens and some they kill the main bad guy, and it's all right, that's out the way, and then someone else turns up wearing the same clothes as another character in the film and says, Ha ha, but you haven't beaten me, and they just slash his throat. And then they turn around and say to the like sensei, we did it. He says good, and by the time he said the word good, the credits are rolling. <laughs> it is one of Godfrey Ho's best films. It is unbelievable. Like what, the stuff that ha-
1: what, who's the ninja and who's the violent sorcerer then?
0: I suppose the violent sorcerer would, would be the man who dances and puts receipts on people's faces to bring back chinese vampires that we yeah. never actually really typical see
1: in... sorcerer behavior yeah
0: the amount of times i've gone into the dark arts and it and when i my book of like the necronomicon it says well just chuck a receipt on someone's face and they'll come back as they are dead honestly it's, it's such a, it's such a trope with these books um i assume that's the, the sorcerer but of course he's in another film so he's never interacts on him he just dances and laughs at a crystal ball um and the ninja is is the uncle who's played by two different actors. The oh, uncle yeah. of of a, of a, of Leslie played by three different actors. Um, and yeah, they just take down the Lord of Gambling. There's no gambling apart from that initial scene where they play a single hand of five card stud because the way the film I forgot to say this the way the, the the climax of the film happens is the Lord of Gambling says right we'll gamble and whoever's the best gambler you know um, will survive and he just shuffles cards in a really ornate fashion and then he deals four hands of poker out and the woman says nine seconds because she's timing it so mm. we've rewound the film and my brother timed it and it's actually 16 seconds because it seemed a lot longer than nine <laughs> and then it cuts to the other guy and he says right you've got to beat nine seconds or you have to kill yourself like your brother and he does this even more ornate shuffling pattern that probably goes on for about 40 or 50 seconds and it's eight and a half seconds. So yeah. it's just shuffling cards and dealing them. It's, there's no gambling. So yeah, they call not them gambling. Like the little, no. it's, it's, that's, that's like the preamble to gambling. Yes, it's the preparing
1: pre-gamble. to
0: gamble, pre gamble. <laughs> amazing, it, I'm actually when it finished we looked at each other and said that's one of his best because it is not boring, it is not a boring film, it is I well, it's two
1: I would, films for the price of one really isn't it?
0: we have now right with this episode got 800 hours of us talking about movies under our belt and I would love to meet Godfrey home and just say thank you, thank you for everything you've done not just for me but for cinema what a fantastic man you are
1: yeah, you missed your chance to meet Albert P and I suppose so um, and move on.
0: Move on to Godfrey.
1: Um, should we move on to the Arkenstar at this point?
0: Yes. Yes. Well And, and keep the rest for the for the next two. I parties. think so.
1: I think so. Got, yeah. I got. I can hold some some of this back. Yeah. Some of this pure fine. pure bronze. Uh, so it is time for the Arkansar,
0: and um, let me just sort through. So, yes the the Arkenstar, It was interesting because it's Wallace Shawn to Nicholas Cage this this week, but. Three separate people, myself included, referred to him as Sean Wallace. <laughs> like you misreading his name on teams. Yeah. Um, so Transvault chipped in with a, a previous Arkansas, said, I was gutted with last week's Arkansas. I watched four DC animated films as I was sure that C. Thomas Howell had done a voice in one. I gave up and looked it up and it was the bloody Flashpoint Paradox, which also starred Ron Pillman, who was in Blade 2 with Norman Reedus. Get it. So he was a late <laughs> artist at the party. I like the thought of like desperately watching animated films with your eyes shut and I hope you'll recognise a voice. Um, uh, so, oh, so one of the entrants this week is... Oh, actually, I've got to do this. Sorry, so that was... I may have made a booby here... Sorry, I'm going to have to find. I know we've had another Arkansas entry. I've just got to find it really quickly. Rupert, sing some music.
1: This is Halloween. This is Halloween. God, I've heard that song a few times recently. My son is obsessed with Nightmare Before Christmas, which is good. I'm happy with that.
0: I am I'm gonna to have to watch that soon. So I've got yeah. I got two from Max. Basically, did one and then he sent another one in. Um, and it, it so the first one is still in time for the Arkansas, Always, I've got Wallace Shawn played Rex in Toy Story with Joan Cusack as some cowgirl. Joan is in Gross Point Blank with her brother John, and John is with Nicolas Cage and Kanye. So it's a nice three step yes. there, and. Oh, a cheating one as I had to check it. I had a feeling I remembered Wallace Shawn being a marriage story and he was, as is Laura Dern who's in Wild at Heart with Nick Cage. That, that is true. Is it? So a two-stepper. Is that... Wallace Shawn a marriage story with Laura Dern who's in Wild at Heart with Nick Cage. Yes, yeah, so it's a two-stepper. So that's a, that's a really nice one. Um, And then we've got one from Utah. So I just have to find that one, one second. Sorry, because we skipped forward a little bit. I was uh tiny bit unprepared so, let me find this here we go so this is utah's entry
2: i'm very excited about my Arkham star. i was getting absolutely nowhere and then all of a sudden it just hit me like a flash it wasn't like stilted like it usually is get from there to there oh no that's not quite right we'll go back and then you circle back it just went boom one hit instantly like my subconscious put it all together and then just put it to the forefront of my mind amazing so it might not win but it's a pretty good one i think uh sean wallace is in princess bride with robin wright robin wright is in forest gump with gary sinise who is in snake eyes with Nicolas cage
0: that's a nice good. one that's a good and then the final entrant was from Laszlo, our occasional lover and constant co-host. That's the wrong way round. <laughs> I surely Robin Wright has appeared in one of Nicolas Cage's three thousand plus films. He was, as just illustrated by Utah Smith, but I can't bloody think of it. So instead we have Wallace Shawn, was in Toy Story with Tom Hanks, who was in Apollo 13 with Ed Harris, who was in The Rock with Nicolas Cage. So. A lot of three steppers and uh max's cheating two-stepper for the win what have you got Rupert?
1: i have wallace sean is in the incredibles with holly hunter who's in Raising arizona with nicholas cage another three-stepper it's a two-stepper is
0: that a 2 stepper oh so you've got a genuine two-stepper They're well legit i think it's 40 mil.
1: actually po- to first you. point ever <laughs>
0: Yeah, first point ever. Oh, I totally forgot to mention as well. Um, So uh, we've got a – wait there one second. Again, let me just get my notes up. Uh, a word from our sponsor, and today's word is God's. So we've got uh, – this is the first of a two-parter of uh, halloween 2023 yeah uh hope you've all enjoyed it uh we i've got four more films to go you've got three i dare say there'll yeah. be more by the next one shall we continue
1: to just watch horror just so i, th- I think there's that's the only way to go isn't it at this stage i am yeah. entrenched in horror oh we need to do the new arkansas after the next the next uh oh yeah <laughs> totally forgot about that and we also um, need to choose our films of the week don't we okay no, oh well uh... I won't choose an actor from Blair Witch Project. <laughs> oh, no, that would be too hard. I was going to suggest Doug McClure, but that is it's too hard because <laughs> he's not really in films with other people.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, I'll start us off because... Yeah. Okay, Kendrick Del made me do it. I feel like Patrick Wilson, Vera Farmiga, ninth gate. You got. Joe. It's tempting to say Frank Mangella, but I don't want to, and I'm not going to talk about the people in the Godfrey film because they probably aren't in any other films. So I'm going to say just what because he made such an impact on me this week, I'm going to say Christopher Walken.
1: Oh, okay. Like what you're doing there. Okay. Um. Okay. Out of Christopher Walken to. Laura Linney.
0: Oh, okay. That seems go. sort of a, of a similar
1: generation, so that that's cool. It seems doable, doesn't it? Yeah. And yet, will it be doable? Sometimes the fun of it is like you know there's a two stepper, you're stuck on three. Three three stepper does seem to be
0: the the kind of average. Yeah. Yeah, there's a Three lot of degrees of
1: separation. My film of the week, I believe, in my heart of hearts. Uh, well, I would suggest that people watch No One Will Save You, just mm. because it's the unknown entity and all this. I mean, the Blair Witch Project, I definitely recommend that people revisit that, because it still holds up. But No One Will Save You, it could go unnoticed. So, it's oh. mine is mine's
0: h- harsh because I've got Communion, the the Cundring the. De- Ninth Gate is one of my favorite films. And Ninja the Violent Sorcerer is... So I'll, I'll do this, right? I'll say the Ninth Gate is one of my favorite films. If you want to just sit there with like a nice glass of wine and luxuriate. Ninja the Violent Sorcerer is so far one of Godfrey Ho's best films. But because it was slated at the time, Communion, because Chris Walken's performance really yeah. just entranced me. So I would say Communion is, is my film of the week, just okay. to not go with Ninth Gate. Um, and yeah I it so yeah we'll join you, um, we'll try and do this quickly within a week to get part yeah. two up a bit quicker than usual, while it, all, all the movies are still fresh in our mind, and so I can talk about Snake Eater 2, the drug buster um, so that's the film that Faye walked in she walked straight back out um, single so, motion <laughs> Rupert, I love you have you got anything else to say?
1: I have nothing else to say for the rest of my life I hope you Just know it's going to make this, this podcast video. really difficult yeah
0: it'd make it more fun for me because of what i would just i would just guess what you're saying and then but imagine it in my mind and and react accordingly so it would just be a (laughs) two-hour podcast of me either like laughing or
1: sighing or or agreeing (laughs) you'd just be there'd just be long like silences in which occasionally punctuated by you going hmm yeah yeah oh yeah yeah Maybe that's what the fans want. If you want to get in touch with us,
0: it's at Kino Kingdom on Twitter or uh, the men who talk about love Rupert, I love you. I love you. Happy Halloween, everyone. Part one. Hey, it's Tia Carrere and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys.